Welcome everyone to Sunday service on this beautiful day here at the Expanding Light Retreat. And a special welcome to those of you in programs here at the Expanding Light, yoga teacher training uh, students, and our community and those jo uh, joining us online. My name is Tiagi Lisa. This is Tiagi Peter. And we're very happy to be here with you today. Today's reading from Rays of the One Light, commentaries on the Bible and Bhagavad Gita, based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Today's reading is Deeds versus Intentions. <coughs> Excuse me. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ emphasized repeatedly the spirit, not the letter of the law. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, he speaks of the sin of killing and of the legal punishment attendant on that sin, but says that more important than the act is the desire to kill or to do harm. He shows that the sin of harmful desire goes beyond merely wanting to kill. My message to you, he said, is this. Whoever is angry with his brother without cause already stands condemned. Whoever contemptuously calls his brother a fool shall answer for it to the Supreme Council. And whoever calls his brother an outcast of God shall be in danger of hellfire. Brother here means any other human being. For all of us in the highest sense are brothers and sisters, children of our one Father, Mother, God. The true self of one, excuse me, the true self of one is the self of all. To hurt another is, even if, it do, if one doesn't realize it, to hurt oneself. Swami Kriyananda in the path recalls an episode in which the master, Paramhansa Yogananda, revealed his sense of identity even with the plants. One day, Kriyananda wrote, we were moving a delicate but rather heavy tropical plant into position on a hillside. Our handling evidently was too rough, for Master cried out, be careful what you are doing. Can you feel? It's alive. To wish death to anyone, to wish even harm to another creature, is to deny in oneself the reality of the divine life of which all of us are manifestations. It is in short to deny the eternal truth proclaimed by the Bhagavad Gita in the second chapter. This self is never born, nor does it perish. Once existing, it cannot ever cease to be. It is birthless, eternal, changeless, ever itself. It is not slain when the body is slain. Thus through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Aum, Aum, Aum. This reading is from Whispers from Eternity, this is Yogananda's book of prayer demands and mystical poems. 
This is the, the demand not to be enslaved by the ego or by ego-centered passivity. I want to use my own will, but guide it ever, Father, toward the golden paradise of all fulfillment. For I would be infinity's smiling child, confident of being imprisoned no longer behind bars of fruitless desire and withered hopes. I would break the shameful cords of lethargy that have presumed to hold me and step fearlessly into freedom. Released, I now blaze my way through forests of every limitation and delusion. Oh, my little vain ego may strut proudly saying, behold my glory, worship me. But I will look through its transparent form and behold thine unimaginable beauty, clothed in the subtle form of the whole universe. The silence-tuned hearing of my soul will ignore that tiny boasting masquerader, my little self impersonating thee. And I will listen rapturously to the wind-borne, fragrant music of thine own marchless, matchless voice whispering through the ages, I am he, I am he. I was thinking this morning about 35 years ago, I was sitting in a cardiologist's waiting room with Swami Kriyananda. One of my duties in caring for him as a physician was I'd often go to his specialty appointments with him and try to make sense of the, some of the complexities of his health. He often would ask me, am I still your most complicated patient, Peter? And I'd say, yes, you are. <laughs> And somehow he was joyful through it all. Well, we were sitting in the waiting room and a very curious thing happened. He asked me, uh, fair, there was no one else in the waiting room, just the two of us. Um, and all of a sudden at one point he said, now tell me about my electrocardiogram again. What did you find? And I told him a little about it. And he said, well, now can you explain to me about this one thing? And he asked me something very specific and I said, I'll have to tell you, Swami, it is, that is very complicated. I do not understand it. It's part of why we're seeing a cardiologist today, is I'd like him to explain it to me as well. And it was very interesting because all of a sudden he looked away from me and started scolding me for not knowing what this thing was with his electrocardiogram. And how could I be a good physician or even a good friend if I didn't know this? And it was going to make a wreck of everything in this visit. And I remember thinking in the moment that, well, maybe I should have known it, but I don't. And it's really important we go in and collect it for this visit. And so I just tried to be centered. And actually, I started smiling. And I saw him look at me out of the corner of his eye. And the moment he looked at me, he just stopped in the middle of a sentence. And I was thinking about it days later, and I realized he had done that several times with me, where he would start scolding me. And um, I realized at that point when I finally said, well, this isn't about me. I need to be more super conscious in this situation. I'm here for something important. And 
It's not whether I do a great job. And after that, he never scolded me like that again, ever. So I always took that as a real, real emphasis for me on when we're ever uh, confronted with, this, with a situation where we're not quite sure what to do, is it's always good to choose the option that is more expansive, that is more freeing. If we choose the option that is contractive, to feel bad about ourselves, to worry, um, to be upset or angry, um, those things are contractive and they're the antithesis of our spiritual development. But we always have that choice, remember that. I remember several weeks ago I was talking with a friend of mine who uh, had in his younger days been through some very trying things as a teenager. And he had asked, was in a small class with Swami, this was probably about 25 years ago, and uh, people were, had a chance to ask questions. And he asked the question, he, he says, um, well, what about your ego if you don't feel like you have a completely intact ego because something has happened to you? Um, what do you do about that? How do you deal with that on trying to um, grow spiritually? Do you have to go back and work on your ego first? And Swami thought about it for a moment and said to him, well, why don't you emphasize devotion and emphasize your uh, love for God and really focus on that? And stop talking. And the fellow thought, well, he must not have understood my question. So he kind of asked the same thing exactly again. And Swami gave him the exact same response. And he finally decided, well, he must not have really understood the point I was getting at. So he waited several years. And he was in another setting with a much smaller group. And he thought, well, this time I'll get my question answered. <laughs> and he asked the same question again. And he got the same answer. And he was telling me this because he said what I learned from that was the first step in spiritual development, we all are going to have things that are kind of pulling us backward in our spiritual growth, things that are trying to hold on to us. And the first step is to get focused on our spiritual development. And the best way to do that is to engage the heart with our love for God. Swami Kriyananda would often say that if you look and talk to most, look at and talk to most people, you'll find that they're really kind of a bundle of self-definitions. I'm male or I'm female. Um, I have this level of education. Um, this is where I live. These are the people I associate with. These are my political beliefs. Um, they are hemmed in by their construction of how they think about their lives. What Swami said about that, it's much better if we are going to define ourselves in any way that we, we define ourselves by our aspirations and best by our spiritual aspirations. Again, taking the focus off this encrusted, contracted aspect of our being, which is our ego, and focusing on 
our aspirations, which are infinite. It's very interesting. I was just reading last night, and Swami even makes this as a comment, that our divine potential does not include our ego. So we spend all this time in our lives sort of plumping and propping up our ego and satisfying our little likes and dislikes and um, following things we're interested in. And most of it really does not have that much to do with our spiritual search. So any time that we're concerned that our personality has been um, impugned or something that we've done, people aren't thinking well about it. Remember, the part of us that feels that is not an aspect that we're growing toward. It's an aspect that we're trying to leave behind. So when we're making the right decision in how we work with our lives, we feel an expansion in our sense of awareness, an increase in our level of energy, and an increase in our sympathy for others and other people's situations. And you find a decrease of your ego and your likes and dislikes. Swami would often talk about the fact that in any given lifetime, we're only working on a handful of things. And in fact, he said, you can kind of think of your, um, your whole uh, karmic burden as being like an iceberg, that most of it is unseen and under the water. In any given lifetime, there's only a little bit that's showing. And I've often thought it's very curious, and I often see this in spiritual aspirants, is sometimes they'll have very odd things about their temperament that you would not expect, something that doesn't really fit uh, with what you would expect with that person. It's kind of inconsistent with everything else. And I realized, well, that happens because we have to work some of these things out. It's our karma to work some of these things out partially uh, externally. And they're there so that we can recognize them. And they're there for our edification. Basically, the way Yogananda talked about it is that we reincarnate. And each time we come into this physical body and have a lifetime of 60 or 80 or 90 years, we are in school. And we're being educated and trained. But the curriculum is designed just for us. It's perfectly designed for what we need for our development. And there's only a tiny bit of all our karma and awareness that's focused in this lifetime through this particular ego and personality. And it's there for our edification. I think Yogananda would also say our enjoyment, even though sometimes the education can feel pretty tough. One of the things I was thinking around this uh, aspect of the ego has to do with digital information technology. It's actually one of the things that um, we see now, one of the more common um, addictive disorders we actually deal with in medicine now is internet addiction. People just have difficulty unplugging um, from that constant stimulation. There's actually a pretty good reason that that can be addictive so quickly for people. It turns out anytime you do something that is gratifying or pleasurable, your brain responds by releasing a small amount of um, a neurochemical. It's called dopamine. And so 
when you see someone who, for example, is sitting at a slot machine with a big smile on their face, pulling the arm <laughs> of the slot machine, even though it is causing tremendous problems in their lives, part of the reason they're doing that is the release of dopamine in their brain. And they've actually found whether they win or not, they still get the re release of dopamine. Uh, in fact, if they win less frequently, there's bigger dopamine surges. Well, it turns out it's very much the same when people are on the internet. You know, they um, are scanning around and they find, well, here's five people who agree with me about this thing. And, oh, here's someone who um, is saying awful things about someone else, but actually I kind of agree with them, so good for them. Um, <laughs> again, part of the reason that this is honestly seductive is this surge of dopamine that occurs in the brain that is pleasurable. Often when I think about this, it's a little bit like the experiment with here's a rat in a little cage and he has a little bar that if he presses the bar, he gets a little pellet of food to eat. And the more he presses the bar, the more food he gets to eat. Well, the internet and digital technology can be that way. The more you press the little buttons, the more information you get, the more stimulation of your brain and um, more dopamine surge there is in the brain. And before you've noted, you've wasted your evening and there's no time left for meditation. <laughs> Actually, many years ago, I remember having an experience of this that um, was very helpful. I remember some, uh, there was um, some tumult, tumult happening in the Middle East that was not really being reported very widely here in the United States. And I thought, gosh, this is potentially very important. This might have kind of a global effect, but no one's really kind of talking about it, on at least in any of the news magazines I could get hold of. And I finally pulled out a uh, little portable radio that we keep in, for emergencies. We up here, we, it, at Ananda, we live in an area where sometimes we have to think about evacuating because of fires. And I wanted to have a news radio that we could carry with us if something like that happened. Well, I pulled it out and I played with it and I found out I could actually pick up um, an international station, uh, one based in Europe, it was the BBC, it turned out. And they actually would do a very lengthy report on this issue every night about 9 p.m. our time. And so for about a week, every night at 9 p.m., I'd find the one spot in my house I could hear the BBC, and I'd get the dial kind of tuned in, and I'd sit down and I'd listen to this report, and it'd be like, oh, this terrible stuff is happening, and gee, well, you know, what will happen tomorrow? And um, every time after that, I realized that I was feeling kind of edgy afterwards, that I had difficulty sleeping, and I had a terrible meditation. And so after about a week of this, I finally realized, you know, you're not going to affect anything, Peter. This is going to happen with you or without you. <laughs> and you really need to sleep and you really need to meditate. <laughs> and so I turned it off and didn't listen again. And lo and behold, like most things, in fact, I was actually thinking about this this morning. If I look back over the, like the last 30 years, over all the major things that have happened worldwide in our culture, um, that were big in the news, particularly ones where you kind of wondered at the time, was this a good thing, was this a bad thing? If I look back, my conclusions right at that point about 
was this good? Was this bad? You know, how is this going to work out in the future? Trying to prognosticate a little bit. I was wrong about half the time. <laughs> and if you'd asked me right at that time, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I could have given you a very convincing argument about why I was right. And yet, in retrospect, for how much ever time or energy I put into paying attention to those things, really didn't add up to helping or hindering any situation. And I was wrong at least about half the time. <clears throat> Christ once said to his disciples when they were gathered together with him, he realized they were talking about who amongst them was the most spiritually advanced. And so he stood before them and he, and he basically said, he among you who is the least is the greatest. And really the point he was getting at was around the ego, is those of you in whom the ego is the most diminished, who are the freest and are experiencing the fruit of God realization the most fully, those are the greatest. You know, it's a curious thing at the, toward the end of Swami Kriyananda's life, he would talk intermittently about the importance of meditation and attunement for us as devotees, but sometimes he would also posit the question, what if everyone in the world meditated? Wouldn't the world be a different place? Just think of all the disagreements that occur in the world. And every, if everyone was just meditating a little bit, 20 minutes a day, just think how different countries would interact, human beings would interact. I wonder what the level of crime would be like or other kinds of difficulties that we see between nations. Would those simply disappear? Would they become considerably less? And he would often talk about, would it matter if we were able to uh, start a movement that would help people of all religions include a meditative practice that children would be taught in school to meditate and include that where it would become just as normal to uh, meditate on a daily basis as it would be to eat or to exercise. When we meditate, it is the one thing that helps us free the hold the ego has on us and begin to draw in this powerful superconscious energy that helps transform us and loosen the hold that our old thought patterns, our likes and dislikes have upon us. And it also begins to loosen the hold that the ego has upon us. So if you're someone, perhaps you're here for the first time or you've just come for a program this weekend and you don't already meditate regularly, it would be a good idea to start with that. Um, there's actually good so studies showing that for people who meditate even 12 to 15 minutes a day, they get significant benefit 
from their meditative practice. I think if Swami Kriyananda was here, he'd probably say, well, start with 20 minutes to a half an hour, at least once a day or twice a day, if you're able to um, begin with that. Certainly for anyone who's taking it more seriously, trying to meditate more like an hour and a half or more a day would be a good idea because every additional moment we spend in meditation, particularly if it's done with sincere desire and energy, begins to uh, generate this upward flow of energy that helps us be free of our likes and dislikes and the hold that the ego has on us. Remember, God has us here for our edification. God has us here for our education. And the one way we can see clearly through what we are to learn from this, how we are to change, is to have a meditative practice and to keep our love for God uppermost in our minds. Sake. 